tens of millions of families with Alzheimer's disease and dementia all over the world, including our family. We are Alls in the Fam. I'm Alan Fair. And I'm Polly Fair Noise. We're siblings, we are parents, but we're also caregivers. This is our podcast. This is our support group. Welcome to our family. Alzheimer's sucks, but this family lives, laughs, and learns as we fight for a cure. Welcome. Hey, Polly. Hey, Alan. So these next two episodes of Alls in the Fam are really exciting because in these episodes, you, me, and our sisters, Bonnie and Tracy, chat with our first ever guest. Yeah, I'm so excited. In this episode, we welcome Bridget Reynolds from the Memory Disorders Program at Georgetown University. She's a research investigator conducting clinical style trials for new treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And with almost 20 years at Georgetown, Bridget is incredibly experienced and specializes in evaluating and treating patients with memory problems like our mom. In this episode, she tells us how she evaluates patients with memory issues, including the types of tests she administers and the importance of a family member's description of symptoms. She breaks down the subtle differences between Alzheimer's dementia, vascular dementia, and other dementias. Bridget shares her knowledge about tools currently being researched for diagnosing dementia and the importance of getting evaluated early. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. So here's part one of our conversation with Bridget right now. Hey, Bridget, welcome to the Alls in the Fam podcast. We're so happy to have you. Today, for everyone out there, we, we've got Bridget Reynolds, who is our mom's neurology provider at Georgetown Memory Disorders Program, and she's very kindly agreed to have a conversation with us about our mom. So I think we first met you around October of 2014, and um, I had tried to get in to see a neurology provider and had a lot of trouble finding. I know you guys are really in high demand. We're really lucky to get in to see you, and we loved you the first minute we met you, but tell us about, um, if you remember, when you first met our mom, was she kind of the average sort of level of dementia that you first encounter patients? All right. So yeah, so it was uh, September 26, 2014. And thanks for the electronic medical record. I can look back and tell you. <laughs> um, and I would say fairly typical when you came in, and I think, Polly, you were the only one that came with your mom in that initial visit. I don't know. Bonnie, did you come? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I think I was there, but I'm not positive. I was there certainly at one of the first ones, if not the very first. You okay. may have been there. I usually put in my notes who was there. But at any rate, um, you had said that your mom had had symptoms for about two years. Uh, before we come in. And I would say for us, over time, we're seeing people earlier now over time, 2014, but, but many people come in after they've been experiencing symptoms for a number of years and, and sometimes too when they've been evaluated by multiple providers before they come okay. in. Yeah. yeah. I think we actually, looking back, we realize a lot of things that happened four years before that were actually probably dementia related. Um, so what, uh, I know that there's sort of a standard exam, I think, the, the mini mental state exam, is that what it's called? Um, 
and there's there's levels associated with that. So what was my mom's level and what would that be considered in the scale? Okay, so when she came in, in her initial evaluation, it was 22, and that would be considered mild dementia. However, as you know, that's not the only way that we, we make a diagnosis. We use the Minimal um, state exam score as a rough guide. And what's typically more important is what the family and the patient tells us about what's been happening with them. But it's a score from zero to 30. So zero would be no points at all. And the, the more points you get, the better. 30 would be the highest point points you get. And on average, a score from about 20 to 26 would be consistent with mild Alzheimer's disease, 26 to 28 mild cognitive impairment, and then 28 to 30 normal. Okay. So, and then she scored actually higher when she came in for the screening visit uh, for the study, which was in 2015, her score was 25 out of 30. So <laughs> I wonder how much of that might have been due to, um, I believe you and her primary care provider had put her on like B12. And I don't know if Aricept started, but it started with you as well, right? So the Aricept started with us, but she had had started the B12 before because she yeah. had she'd already had some of the workup done by the primary care provider. She had had her MRI and there's blood tests that we do to test for certain things that are what we call reversible causes of dementia. So we don't want to miss something that's treatable. And your mom had a low B12, which is something that needed to be treated and can contribute to memory loss. But I don't think we, we really thought that that would have fully explained her memory loss. And the other thing you have to have is evidence of functional decline. So in order to differentiate between mild cognitive impairment and mild Alzheimer's disease, there has to be something that the person is not able to do that they were once able to do and they're not able to do it because of memory or thinking changes. Mm. And that with your mom was, um, she was living alone. Uh, she was managing almost independently, but the one thing that had changed was that one of you was assisting her with management of her finances. So she was making mistakes, and that was the first functional the piece, the first functional evidence of functional decline that that we talked about. Yeah, you know, I have a and I have a question there because, and it kind of goes into where. Um, I see the most questions coming to me. And that is, is that where you usually see the first issue? Because when I talk to people, I always, that's one of the things I bring up is there's these multi-step tasks become so difficult. And, you know, someone said to me exactly that, that their loved one needed to go to the dentist. And I said, you don't understand the number of steps it takes to go to the dentist. You have to remember that you need to go. You have to call the dentist. You have to set up an appointment, explain your diagnosis. You have to remember on the day you're supposed to go. You have to drive yourself. You know, you have to have your insurance. You have to do this and that. And that's such a multi-step task that it's very difficult. So, and same thing with finances. So I'm curious if you think that that's one of the first things that you normally see, and then therefore that's a place where someone who's concerned should get involved right away. And what other places where caregivers should or family members should try and get involved right away? 
Yeah, I would say, so I, I usually sort of have a, when I'm trying to tease out evidence of functional decline, and part of the problem with this is, as you can tell, that's highly subjective. So that's, I mean, we're really working on a big part of the research is better biomarkers, early, earlier ways of detection. But I would say finances is one of them, driving is another one of them, cooking is another one of them that you can use. Um, organizing mail and papers is another one. So, you know, if, if people have any kind of an office at home, just even the process of sorting through mail, knowing what stack you keep, what stack is junk, what goes in recycling. Um, and so organization in general at home, I usually, the, the finances, the cooking and the organization is three key ones to ask people about. Someone's going to put me away right now if they looked in my home office. <laughs> I, was gonna, I was thinking the same thing, Bonnie. <laughs> so I think that with just mom, means we're creative right now. But I do think with mom, what, we, what I noticed was she wasn't paying her bills. So I would go in her house and see on her kitchen table a bunch of bills, and that was never a thing for her. So, um, so the way you diagnosed... Uh, my mom with the tests and the blood work, that's sort of a standard workup for Alzheimer's uh, or a, a, a memory, someone who comes to you with a memory issue. Right. Is that... Those are two big pieces of it, but the biggest piece of it is the history. Okay. So you want to know how things, what, how things presented and, and whether or not and how they have progressed. So what was the first symptom that was noticed? Was it memory? Was it language? Was it um, orientation? Uh, and then, and ha how has it progressed or has it not progressed? Right. That, that's probably the, the biggest piece. And then you, you want to look not just at, you know, memory and thinking. You, you first ask what, what the patient and or family has noticed. And then you also, so it's memory or thinking then behavior and function, kind of like the ABCs. Um, a is activity, B is behavior, and C is cognition. So you want to look at all those things in a history. I remember at, um, at one of the very first visits, I don't know if it was the first one, that you did some tests I've seen done on my daughter when they suspected a concussion, sort of follow my finger, or, um, and I assume those are neurology tests, but, um, would those, I mean, are those to um, rule out a different problem or what, what are the reason for that in your mind? Yeah, so typically that is it. So you wanna do a full neurologic exam. Typically with Alzheimer's, there aren't any in early Alzheimer's and there's no physical findings on exam. But different dementias could have different physical findings. You know, okay. so body dementia, for example, you could have Parkinsonism. So you wanna, a physical exam is a big piece of it, and you're primarily looking for, a, could have evidence of a stroke, you know, focal symptoms, differences on one side or the other. Yeah. So the okay. physical exam is also part of it, and right now, that's that's the piece of it that, that we can't do as well remotely with the remote visits during the Yeah. Period. That's, yeah. Um, so uh, my brother Alan has, uh, um, he has a father-in-law who is also struggling with dementia, but I think it's a different type of dementia, isn't it, Alan? Yeah, it's, uh, I believe it's called vascular dementia and is the type that's uh, commonly associated with type two diabetes. 
Um, and it's been interesting to listen to this conversation because some of my earliest memories of him as his uh, memory started to deteriorate had to do with him making a lot of financial mistakes that were really alarming to us. He gave a uh, donation to his church that he flat out could not afford, you know, thousands of dollars that didn't actually <laughs> exist and were in, uh, were in the account on a credit card. He loaned people money that he didn't, th there wasn't any money to, uh, to be loaned. Um, so while the type of dementia might be different, a lot of the patterns seem to be the same. So what I was wondering, Bridget, is how would you, what would make you decide someone had most likely Alzheimer's dementia versus vascular dementia? Or are they the same thing? Well, they're not the same thing. Um, and uh, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia followed by vascular is the second most common. And then there's mixed dementia where people could have uh, both a combination of vascular and Alzheimer's disease. But the two, there are both the physical exam and the brain and the MRI, the brain imaging, which is also done to, you can't uh, detect Alzheimer's disease on an MRI. There's some changes that could be associated with Alzheimer's disease, but typically in a vascular dementia, it's someone who's had a history of stroke um, and then on a physical exam, you, so there's a, actually the, a test that we use called the Hachinsky uh, scale. And that's, you know, used in all research studies. You, in a research study, you want to have people with, you want to know the type of dementia that they have as best you can. And vascular dementia would be excluded from an Alzheimer's trial. But on that Hachinsky score, it's thing, there's a, there's a variety of questions that you ask. Does the patient have a history of hypertension? Does the patient have a history of cardiovascular disease? Um, do they have changes on their physical exam? And, 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 and one of the big ones, and I would be interested to know in, in your father-in-law's case, is also uh, the pattern of decline is stepwise as opposed to gradual with Alzheimer's disease. So someone has a vascular hit and then they take a cognitive decline and then they stay at that level and then they could have another vascular hit and then decline again. Uh, and thirdly, the, the medicines that we use for Alzheimer's disease aren't uh, for symptomatic benefit, haven't been really proven beneficial in vascular dementia. So that's, you know, a huge need to make more progress there. So it was your father-in-law's uh, decline stepwise or, and, and it's never like crystal clear, you know, like, yes, it was right. that, that day that, but. It, it, it's hard to say. Um, I, I only see him every, you know, maybe once every month and, and a half, but I would say over the last three years, uh, I've witnessed him going from being able to drive to not being able to. I've witnessed him going from being, uh, I, I assume the opposite of incontinent is continent, going, you know, being able to handle that all by himself to seeing a few uh, incidents where he's had some accidents related to that. Uh, I I've noticed that more recently that he is clumsy now. Um, his ability just with basic coordination, you know, just uh, him going up a flight of stairs, just is kind of like, ooh, I hope he gets up there, okay. Um, 
and he's always struggled with weight, as is common with uh, those with type 2 diabetes. And I would say he's as heavy as he's ever been over the last year as well. Um, I think uh, Alan, Alan's wife, Tina, mentioned to me that um, uh, her dad was also having more MRIs as, as tools for diagnosis than my mom was. And I wonder if that's what, if they're seeing a lot of uh, clues there that are making, um, making his doctors think that it's vascular. Um, I, that, would that be normal, Bridget? Yeah, you would you'd use the MRI would, would tell you a lot about vascular and, and, and some about Alzheimer's disease too. Well, uh, circling back to my mom, because, you know, near to my heart, um, I remember we really struggled a few, uh, three or four years into us being, um, uh, her, bringing her to see you with uh, whether or not to have my mom have cataract surgery. At the time we first talked to you about it, she had mild cataracts. She could still see, she could still read, but it's a little cloudy. And we, um, we knew that it was kind of a difficult process after you have cataract surgery. My mom was still mostly living alone, um, but we were visiting her constantly. But with, with cataract surgery, you need drops four times a day. Um, and, I remember you gave us some really good advice about that. We were like, wow, do we spend the, the money, the time, the mover in with us and make sure she gets those drop four, drops four times a day afterwards. Do you remember what you tell people when they're considering whether or not to spend the time on cataract surgery and maybe hearing aids um, with their loved one who has dementia? I probably don't remember exactly what I could guess, but you go ahead and tell me. Well, I mean, I think you would probably give the same advice. Again, what would you tell someone who's considering cataract surgery for someone who has Alzheimer's? To have as much of an advantage with their senses as, as they can in order to stay in the game. So I would encourage them to get the surgery. If it can improve their vision, then that can improve their independence and so on. And that's what we're all about is keeping people as independent and as functional for as long as possible. So um, with that advice that made so much sense to me, we did go ahead and have my mom have her um, cataract surgery, took a couple attempts. <laughs> she didn't, uh, she wasn't able to sit still for the first attempt, so we had to do it under full anesthesia, which I, again, we referred to you, we were concerned about, would um, going heavily under anesthesia affect her neurologically? And I'm, you know, I'm here to tell you, for my mom, it was a phenomenal um, improvement for her um, to be able to see perfectly. And at this point, I would say even better because she she would probably be losing glasses all the time and certainly couldn't handle contacts. So with the cataract surgery, she didn't need that anymore. But um, her sensory input is better. And I had, hadn't thought of it from that angle. I was worried about, can she handle the surgery? Can we handle um, doing drops all the time? Um, so just a, a plug. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent advice for us. Um, yeah, it was a rough month twice doing all the drops and whatnot, but the benefit 
far outweighed the risk. <laughs> and it was well worth the, the follow-up. I mean, she stayed with me for most of the, um, the time in the follow-up. And it was difficult when you have someone who doesn't remember why they have the, um, the patches on their eyes and there was no makeup. And I caught her, I, I took all her makeup away from her and I caught her in my bathroom with a ballpoint pen putting her eyebrows on. <laughs> I'm like, no, don't, don't touch your eyes with a ballpoint pen. Mom wants those eyebrows. Yeah, she's got to have her makeup on. So um, that kind of leads me, Bridget, to... Um, I noticed since I went to, I think I went to every single visit my mom ever had with you, that she kind of went up and down in her, not necessarily her score, but in her, I don't know, ability and her dementia. Sometimes she seemed really great. And do, do the scores when you see over time reflect that she was better sometimes than others? Yeah, I mean, especially that screening score um, when she screened for the study was, you know, to go. But uh, actually, though, typically over time, when you look at it, her rate of decline has been pretty standard. Okay. Back, you know, she came in with a 22. She bumped up a little bit. But again, we don't rely on anybody can score a two point difference on the MMSE on any given day. And then again, it's always just a rough guide. But then when I saw her the last time on 11-21-19, last time I saw her in clinic, she was, uh, she was in, at an eight. Yeah. After the study, uh, when she came in in April of 2017, um, she was a 17 or a 15. So... Uh, now I say 17 or 15, there's two ways to score that. And, and, and whether you ask the, I don't know if you remember that they have the sevens, the serial sevens or spelling mm -hmm. world backwards. Yeah. And so people will typically do better with the world than the sevens, subtracting sevens, but she scored a, a 15 with sevens in 2017 after the trial. So 20, so if, if you figure a two point decline, if she came in in 2014 with the 22 and then in 2017, she was a 15, um, so that's seven points, two points, you know, it's, it's pretty average. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, and I think I, I had said um, one thing about that score, which I think you've kind of covered it, but I would say to Polly, you know, she answers the question, but the quality of her response is so much lower you know, when um, she wouldn't, her sentences wouldn't be as full or as rich and her reactions wouldn't be there. And Bridget, this is a piece where, you know, you you knew my mom, you've known my mom over years now, and you know how she feels about certain subjects. You know, she doesn't like needles. She doesn't prefer to take medication, things like that. And you would be able to allow her to have those conversations with you when she couldn't fully make those connections and say the whole words out loud. So while she's answering the question that you're giving, you can see that the fullness of her ability to communicate has dropped significantly. That's true. And, and without all of you by her side, I mean, I think you, I, you could probably imagine, and for so many people, how much worse it is. So how well would she be now without having had the support from all of you through the years? 
I mean, to me, there's no doubt in my mind that what the families do ultimately is the most important, their support. Uh, you know, we don't have any disease modifying treatments for Alzheimer's disease. We have those symptomatic, the medicines that help with alleviate the symptoms, but the family support is what's, you I know, mean, she would, she, she couldn't have gotten through the trial. She wouldn't have, been, not that the trial helped her, her, it helped everybody else and it certainly advanced the science, but she, she wouldn't have gotten in for her appointments. She, she would have had behaviors that would have put her in, you know, very risky situations. So, and, and you all continuously, I mean, in the questions that you've asked, we've talked a lot about ass assessment of, of, of cognition and, and maybe that's what this piece of the podcast is about, but it's the behavioral problems of dementia that, 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 that are just, and in, in your mom's case too, um, that make the care very difficult. Yeah. yeah, and that was actually a question that I had about it. You know, our mother has still steadfastly um, denied having memory issues. She'll still say she lives alone. Do you find that to be the case? Because, you know, like in movies like Still Alice and things like that, you'll find the characters are uh, aware and are involved in their own set of help and, and care uh, and... Um, we didn't, we of course don't have that. And I'm just curious whether my mother's situation where she is unaware and in full denial of her condition, whether that's the case for most people or not. Yeah, it is far more common to not be aware, for the patient not to be aware of the problem than for others around them to be much more aware. And it's, I, I you know, it is, some of it may be denial, but more of it, it's lack of insight, really, in, in many cases. Uh, and that lack of insight is actually part of the disease. So more common than not for the patients, for the individual with Alzheimer's disease, not to be aware of their symptoms. And that can be a blessing in some cases as well, because people that are aware can be very worried about what's happening next. But on the flip side, it can make it really difficult. Obviously, when someone lacks insight into their illness, then they're going to be dependent on You know, and I, I just really want to pause there and think about that because I know one of the most difficult things, early disease for caregivers, family members, loved ones, is the frustration that you have with your uh, loved one about their ability to first provide the functions and then be um, willing to participate in their own care. So saying that that's part of the disease process and changing the language from being denial to being unaware is such a critical piece in being able to help my loved one and lowering my own frustration level in the beginning. I tend not to be a very um, patient person and this process has really helped me with that. But that kind of a mindset change early on that we can get out to people who might be in the early stages with their family, I just think is so critical. Yeah. I, I, I will add to that in, in my father-in-law, Spiro, in, in the early days upon his diagnosis, when he still kind of had his marbles, so to speak, he would say, you're gonna see a big change in me, I'm gonna change my diet, I'm gonna change my lifestyle. 
And then the very next morning, he had gone to McDonald's and brought back all this food for us, of which you could see there were empty wrappers and things that he was eating. And it's like, no, dude, you don't, you don't get it. Like, don't bring that kind of food home. You know, like there's fruits and vegetables here. We can make a smoothie in the morning, but um, there's, he was already past the point or, or maybe even just didn't quite ultimately at the end of the day, have the, the interest in, in doing that. And so to have this, uh, this front row seat to his decline and see that he wasn't able to make that decision of, okay, I'm opening the fridge here and there is um, a, uh, a, cake, a piece of cake that I can eat or a piece of fruit or a vegetable that I can eat. You watch him pick the cake every single time and, and it's frustrating. You're like, oh, you don't oh get God. it. But it's yeah, me his memory wasn't there to make the decision. No, I, I agree. Yeah. So um, thanks for that, Bridget. Hey, um, Alan, eventually we're going to um, we're going to end our uh, questions for Bridget. Does anyone have any to wrap up? Um, I know we're going to do a future podcast, talk about the um, the study my mom was in and being involved in a study. Does anyone have any questions to wrap up about mom in clinic or for Bridget about mom? I just think an important point to make, you know, the fact that people are universally reluctant to come in a lot of times it's because they, their barriers, you know, we're, we're not doing very well with either diagnosis or treatment right now because one is people don't come in, they attribute signs to aging and they think it's just normal aging so why do I have to come in and be evaluated or I don't really have a problem but with the way that the research is going the the the, the, the earlier on that people come in we, we believe and through all of the studies that that the chances of anything working as a disease modifying treatment the importance is that people come in early and amyloid starts to build up uh, 10 to 20 years before the onset of memory loss. So if people are waiting to, to come in until they have mild dementia, we've, we've possibly missed a window of treatment. So um, I just think it's a very important point that you made about uh, when people come in and, and was it typical uh, at the time that your mom came in to see us? Yeah, so the earlier the better. Get them in there, right? Well, Bridget, we're going to say goodbye to you for a second. Please hang around um, and we'll be back. Alan, great to see you. Bonnie, Tracy, everyone. Thank you again, Bridget. Thanks for listening to Alls in the Fam. In the fight against Alzheimer's and dementia, we are all family. Find us at Alls in the Fam on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website, allsinthefampodcast.com. We appreciate you clicking that subscribe button on Apple, Google, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast catcher may be. Alzheimer's sucks, but we are in it together. We are Alls in the Family. Talk soon.